You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. It's my privilege to uh, open the scriptures with you this morning. Uh, my name is Joe, one of the pastors here. If you're joining us for the first time, either here or if you're watching one of our videos, uh, we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 26 here in just a moment. If you don't have your own Bible, uh, there are some Bibles under the seats in front of you. Uh, and, and, and you can grab that Bible. You can take it home with you. That's your Bible now if you would like. Um, that's our gift to you. I say thank you again to a, a few generous donors within our church that uh, paid for those and got those there. Um, if you're looking for the book of Acts in that Bible, it is page 855. If you had... My Bible, it's page 1095. But you don't have my Bible, so. <laughs> Acts chapter 1, uh, verses 12 through 26. Uh, I've looked forward to this study uh, in the book of Acts uh, for the last few months and um, looking forward to this portion of our study this morning. Uh, if you would, uh, would you stand with me this morning for the reading of God's Word? We like to change this up a little bit every week, so sometimes we do this and sometimes we don't. I uh, just thought it'd be good to have you guys stand with me. You don't have to read with me. It's, a, it's quite a chunk of text, but if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can follow along on the screen uh, behind me and in front of you. Beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1, it says this, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before him by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Oof. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. 
This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen? Uh, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word, the privilege that we have to come and study your word together, to hear your word proclaimed and preached. And Lord, I pray that your, your spirit would be powerfully present among us. God, I pray that you would take the words of my, my mouth and the meditations of my heart, God, that you would uh, purify them. Uh, God, that you would even cleanse me in these moments of my own unrighteousness, God, that you would uh, use me as, a, as an instrument to speak your word and to bring honor, attention to you, glory to you. Uh, Father, I pray for all who are gathered here and all who would hear this message, God, that your, your spirit would remove any barriers that would hinder uh, from hearing you. God, I pray that you would reveal your heart towards each of us. Uh, I pray that you would come and, and just sit right next to us, as it were, and turn our heads heavenward. Help us to, help us to see following you, be a part of your kingdom is definitely no mundane thing at all. Uh, and that you, Jesus, our, our crucified, risen, and returning Savior, that, that you uh, lavish your love upon us. Save us. Uh, God, God, help us to, uh, to see you and to know you. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Amen. Hey, you may be seated. The book of Acts um, Definitely one of my uh, favorite books in the Bible, of course. I, I suppose I probably say that every time we um, dive into a book on Sundays. Every book in the Bible is my favorite. Um, uh, the book of Acts is my favorite today. <laughs> it is definitely one of the most action-packed books in the New Testament. I, I kind of made that point last week. Um, really what the book of Acts does is it, it basically records the beginning of the church uh, as the Holy Spirit works really powerfully uh, through followers of Jesus so that they can then become His uh, Spirit-filled witnesses to the ends of the earth. This is what's going on throughout the book of Acts. It starts and it spreads like wildfire, really. Um, throughout this book, you, you'll see, man, the, the, these followers of Jesus, um, some of them who once abandoned Jesus at the cross, uh, many of them who argued oftentimes among themselves, uh, especially about who's going to sit at Jesus' right side or left side in heaven, so on and so forth. Uh, oftentimes they, uh, they failed to listen when Jesus was uh, speaking. And the list can go on and on of all their peculiar failures. And, um, at the end of the day, this is the group of people um, that God chose to establish His church, the very edges of the gates of hell chose these really broken, misfit, rebellious <laughs> people to basically be the visible kingdom of God here on earth. Doesn't that, doesn't that give you a little bit of comfort? I mean, I, I don't know if any of you are here and you're like, no, I'm actually, I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm pretty, if that's you, I'm pretty perfect. I doubt it. I doubt any of you here feel that way. So it gives us some comfort to know that these jacked up dudes that rolled with Jesus, um, God chose them. Um, and in the same way, we're, we're just continuing that very same tradition. Um, and again, for all the fast-paced action that you see in the book of Acts, um, really the text in front of us that we're reading today, I mean, it's like if you, if you read last week's text, it's, it's pretty cool. Like, it's, it's got lots of, lots of action in it. You read this, and it's like, hmm, it almost kind of feels a little bit mundane. <coughs> um, may feel a little bit boring. Um, and you know, when you read it, it doesn't seem or appear that it 
really contains anything in the text that's you know super shocking. Um, and some of that's probably because the main content of the story that we just read, the, the verses we just read, um, kind of seem to revolve around um, the the selection and the installation of this leader named Matthias, uh, who who is going to replace the traitor named Judas. We're all pretty probably pretty familiar with the story um, in terms of who Judas was and what he did. And and you know when it comes to like you know selecting and then installing leaders in a church community. Um, that whole thing seems a lot less exciting, if you think about it. Um, and it, it seems maybe a little less applicable to just our average Christian daily lives. Or even for somebody, if you're here and you're not a believer and you're just kind of checking it out, trying to figure it out. It, it just doesn't seem like maybe it holds that same kind of firework or, or pop, right? It, it's, it's a lot less exciting than maybe you know, preaching the gospel in an unknown language which we're going to see uh, next week in chapter 2. Um, doesn't seem as exciting as healing a lame man who, who'd been lame for a long time and just suddenly gets up and starts walking and dancing around. Like, that seems exciting, right? We're going to see that in chapter 3. Um, or even if you think about facing off with uh, enemies of the gospel and just having a, you know, an Old West-type showdown um, where the Bible is your sixth gun, I guess, so to speak. I mean, that stuff seems exciting. That's, that's what's ahead of us. Like that's where we're headed in the next few weeks to months. Um, but here we are today with this text, right? Um, and I would say that even as possibly mundane or a little bit boring as it might seem, it's still remarkable. Um, something really remarkable taking place here. And, and I would say it's because what's taking place here kind of gives us a bird's eye view into a couple of topics that you may not just immediately pick up from the text, but I think you'll see it as we work our way through. Um, there, there's a few things in the text that we're going to notice. Like, first of all, the obedience of the disciples. I mean, that's, that's pretty remarkable when we get to thinking about it. Um, or, or the devotion and, and the unity in the early church. I mean, we think about devotion to a single focused cause and the unity that is taking place among these people in this text. That's pretty remarkable and really exciting when you think about it. Uh, you might think about all the transformation that took place in Peter, too, if you know much about Peter's story. Um, when you see him in this text, he's a completely different man than he was just 40 days ago. Um, and, then, and then lastly, of course, the provision of leadership in, in the church. There's, there's something exciting and remarkable about that as well. So we're going to kind of work through some of those things that I just mentioned, just kind of zero in on them and see what the Holy Spirit does among us as we look at it. So take a look with me first. The first thing I notice is the disciples' obedience, right? The disciples' obedience, verses 12 through 13. When you think about it, it may not immediately like jump off the page at you as you're reading the story, but I think it is important to note a couple things here. Important to note that Jesus, right, he's just returned to heaven, Right? Um, ascended into heaven in a, in a big cloud of smoke. And, 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 and right before he does that, he's promised to pour out his spirit upon his disciples. Why? So that they can receive power to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And, and just before he ascends into heaven, he, he tells the disciples to do something. You might remember that, right? Back in Acts 1.8. In that section, he tells them to do something. He says, hey, go back to Jerusalem. Wait. Wait. Uh, waiting's a hard thing, I think, for us. 
um, especially in our culture, to get things done and be impatient. And, you know, you even think about just Americans, we're kind of pioneers, right? We, and we built roads. I mean, I mean, we, yeah, I mean, this is built into who we are. So, you know, the idea of waiting for something when you feel like you should be getting something done, it's difficult. Jesus says, hey, go wait. Go wait in Jerusalem. Wait for the Spirit to come and baptize you uh, for the work that lies ahead. So when you look at verses 12 to 13, Luke is basically telling us, he's telling us the disciples do, in fact, return to Jerusalem obediently. And they go back to Jerusalem. They go back to a place called the Upper Room. Uh, and there's some, you know, there's some discussion about w- w- what the Upper Room was. Was this maybe the place where Jesus and his disciples um, enjoyed the Last Supper? Uh, very possible. Uh, it would kind of make sense to me, and there, there are some scholars who are like really stuck on that. There, there's other reasons why it may not be. Um, but it would be interesting if that was what it was, because at, at that point, what they're identifying is there is a place where the church gathers at, at that point. And, and they're gathering in a place that I think would remind them of their final meal with Jesus. And so I think there's something significant to that in terms of the relationship factor, right? And what it looks like to build a community that is based on not only just cold, hard facts and teaching, but also there's some experience in that. And there's a relational connection. And so they go back to this upper room. They're obedient. They do just that. And you have to, you have to think about this again. Think about the obedience factor here, okay? Um, this is really significant, honestly, what's taking place. Because prior to this, if you think about the story of Jesus as he gathers his disciples and he's, he's telling them what they're about to go do and he's teaching them and he's training them and he's laying out God's word for them. One of the things that's, that happens in, in that story, when you, when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? You kind of you get this picture that Jesus is constantly dealing with the disciples' lack of obedience. Just constantly. It seems like it's like, almost like a never-ending revolving door. Like Jesus is trying to do ministry to the big crowds, and yet at the same time, he's got this small group of disciples, and there's just like constant disobedience that's, that's taking place. Like they, they're just not even listening to him. Like they're just sticking their fingers in their ears like, la, 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 I can't hear you. Um, right? They argued among themselves. Think about it right before he just right before he died, too. What did they do? Right? They went to the garden so they could pray. And what does Jesus say? Hey, don't. Don't go to sleep. Please pray with me. My, my, the end of my time here on earth is near. And, and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're so obedient. They're, they're such great friends. What do they do? No, they, they, they fall asleep. I mean, they're human. You can give them that. But, but there's disobedience in that. They fall asleep when they should have been awake and praying. Really, ultimately, when Jesus does like his, his biggest work here on earth, when he goes to the cross and he, dro- and he dies, what, what do they do? You know, they... His friends bail. They'll leave them all alone. All the guys, even Peter, if you might remember, at one point, Peter's like, I will never abandon you. Never. And well, we know how the story goes, right? He denies Jesus three times. I don't think he's there at the cross at the end. I think Jesus is all alone, except for maybe John. Remember, right? Maybe John was still there. So you just think about <laughs> this group of men, right? And when women, too, like, yeah, they, they didn't remain necessarily faithful to him to the end, especially in terms of the cross. Very disobedient people. And 
here they are. They make this, it, it's really, when it says that it's a Sabbath day's journey away, uh, you, you were only, uh, according to like Jewish law, you were only able to uh, or allowed to walk a certain distance. I think it had to be two-thirds of a mile or less. So the distance from where they last talked to Jesus before he ascended or when he ascended, that distance from there to Jerusalem was about two-thirds of a mile. So they tried to stay within the law, which is interesting that they started to pay attention to that, wanted to obey that. Um, not to mention that they actually go back to Jerusalem, right? They're going to do what Jesus told them to do. They're going to go back and they're going to wait for the Holy Spirit. They're being obedient and, and they're expecting the fulfillment of Jesus' promise. What was his promise? Go wait and I'll send you the Holy Spirit. Their obedience was based upon that promise. And, and so that, that's something I, I, I would say is that obedient, if you want to obey God, right? If you're in that place where you're like, you know, I know that God wants better for me and he wants better in my life. One of the ways, and, and, and I actually think the primary way that you start to walk in greater levels of obedience is it begins by believing his promises. See, every time we disobey, it's because we're having a hard time believing his promises. Right? So that's, that's the first thing I noticed. Second thing I noticed is the devotion and the unity in this early church, right? Like the devotion and the unity in this early church is absolutely remarkable. You see it in verse 14. I already mentioned that just a, a cursory reading of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you would find there if you just read the story as a whole is you're going to find a band of disciples who are definitely not always on the same page as each other, definitely not always on the same page as their leader, Jesus, right? Constantly fighting, constantly arguing, but in verse 14, when you read it, what does it say? Like Luke tells us of the disciples, they were all together in one accord. Now, now that phrase, in one accord, may not, again, leap off the page at you, but it means unified. They were united. They were on the same page. Only, only a miracle of the Holy Spirit could have made that happen. I mean, you, any of you guys who are married, or any of y'all who have friends, you know that the, the, the human temptation towards discord and arguing and division and distance and coldness and bitterness, I mean, all that stuff that divides us, right? I mean, we live in a polarized society. So this is easy for us to acknowledge. We know that. This is part of the sinful, fallen, broken human condition. And in this moment, it says they were in one accord, that they were united. And listen, <laughs> They weren't united around going and like building a big building, right? They weren't united around, what do we get united around? They weren't united around making a better paycheck. They, they weren't united around losing weight at the gym. Or I mean, there's all sorts of things we can unite around. But this, they, they were united around going to an upper room and praying and waiting in obedience for the Holy Spirit to come. And the text tells us, Luke says, that uh, they were devoting themselves. Devotion, this word, like, carries a, it carries a sense of absolute rock-solid commitment. There's no wishy-washiness. There's no wavering. 
There's no more questioning. In that moment, they all looked around the room at each other and they're like, this is what we're doing. We're here. And I think everybody knew. And there was, there's a trust factor in that, don't you think? Like half the time when you think about human relationships here on earth anyways, and like trying to get after a mission or, again, you know, make a marriage work, keep a friendship straight, get a church move, and so on and so forth. When you think about those things, you're, you're thinking about the lack of trust in relationship because of the failed expectations, those kinds of things, the, 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 the mistrust, the inconsistencies. In this moment, even just for a brief moment, they're devoted. They're in unity. And, and they, they're devoting themselves to prayer. Wow. And it says, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. That's fascinating, that last part when it talks about his brothers. If you, if you do the research and you, you do the study, if you just read the Gospels, you'll find that his, his brothers at some point totally rejected him. His, his fleshly blood brothers. Totally rejected him. Like, I mean, you think about it, right? Like, okay, if you have a sibling, anybody have a sibling that thinks they're God? <laughs> You're married to mine, so. <laughs> she would probably say, I think I'm God. Yeah. Uh, anyways. I mean, you think about the, the brothers of Jesus, the fleshly brothers. I, I, that, this, th- that whole spiel is not obviously anywhere close to being original with me. Some other preacher made that point, and I was like, that's good. Like, can you imagine them I mean, growing up? <laughs> you know, the other brother's like, why doesn't Jesus ever get in trouble? Because he's perfect. I'm going to move this mic down, because it is really hot. Try this. There. That feels a little better. Uh, <laughs> you imagine if something, something breaks, you know? Um, Jesus is like, oh, fixed. <laughs> you know? Got to go shovel the snow off the driveway, Jesus. <laughs> Done. <laughs> you know? The other brother's like sweating it out. <laughs> you know? so I, you, know, you think of that, though. At some point in the story, you know, I'm definitely embellishing, right? I mean, there's a human aspect there. So <laughs> at some point, though, Jesus' brothers are like, yo, I am sick and tired of you pretending like you're God. We're done. Done with you. There was some brokenness there. So it is significant to me that his brothers are in that room. And that's what we see. You've got 11 disciples. Jesus' mom got his brothers. They're all together, unified, devoted, committed to praying together. Now, I want you to think about this. I don't, I don't know what your experience is with church gatherings. Okay? Um, in my experience uh, over the years, prayer gatherings are typically the least attended. Um, I will actually say, in our history, we did try to do a prayer gathering on Sunday mornings before church started. Um, if you show up here early, um, you know, 10 minutes early, 5 minutes early, you might see a group of people coming out of that room over there. And that's what our...
Okay. Hey, there we're back. I wonder if that was why it was spiking, getting so hot maybe, because of the, because of the batteries. So we were talking about prayer gatherings, right? And I think I was talking about uh, if you were to come in early, you'll see people coming out of that side room over there. And that, that's really where that originated at. And it was, I don't remember what year it was. I remember we were meeting at the YMCA and, uh, and we, we just, we tried to invite the whole church. And I, I think I had this, uh, it was early on in our planting process, but I, I think I had this, I don't know, kind of a rose colored glasses type sense. I was like, man, if you, if you call the church to prayer, they're, they're, everybody's going to show up, you know, and uh, it was like two people, <laughs> two people out of 30 or something like that every week. And, 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 you know, there was something really discouraging about that on one side, but there was also something really encouraging. And I, I'll share this, this is a bunny trail story, but I'll share this one little story real fast. One of the most encouraging things that happens, here we are, two or three of us meeting pretty faithfully every Sunday. And it's pretty much the same two or three people, right? And I'll never forget, some of you guys might remember Micah Riley. I'll never forget Micah, um, and he's still a good friend of mine. Um, they just moved like way out past Aurora, so coming here is too far for them. That's why they're not here anymore. Um, I'll never forget the day that we're praying, and as we're praying, Micah looks up and he goes, Joe, I just had this vision of a building, and I'm praying that God would give us that because the energy we're putting into setup and teardown could be going into discipleship. And I kid you not, it was like the next week, this building became empty. And I made a call. And within like seven days, we had the offer. Y'all can have the building for free. So I, it's just a building. <laughs> there were lots of other cool things, but that's just one in the moment that I remember. Um, all that to say, hey, if you want to come pray with us, <laughs> you can. 9.30, we're in that room. We're praying. We do a, a short devotion, and we try to do a little bit of prayer together. And it's just because we, we really value that. Um, but prayer gatherings historically in the church, pretty low attendance. Uh, I mean, and I get it. A lot of times prayer meetings are really early in the morning or, uh, or they're right before church. And you get, there's churches that have like three or four dudes that meet once a week on Saturdays type thing at like 5.30 in the morning when I'm not even thinking about being alive. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and I, and I understand too, just, just being gracious. I understand like, you know, when, when you think about church and oftentimes Church kind of feels like another add-on to everything that we do in our social lives. And, you know, I, it wasn't designed to be that way. Um, it's really, I think, mostly our American culture that has made it that way. Um, church was really meant to be a community that you're part of. Like, this is, you're in. You're all in. This is what you do, right? Like, this is just my life. And I'm in three or four meetings a week, right? This is, that's just, that's not me, but that's just the sense of what I think a church community ought to be like. So the act of gathering together for the sole purpose of praying, uh, probably not the most appealing for the average American church attender. But when you look at this passage, that's what makes it so significant when you think about it, right? That's the first thing they did after Jesus leaves. They're obedient, and they go back, and they spend time in the upper room, and they pray. And if you think about it, I mean, the sense is like there was like 11 of them, and a few women, and however many brothers Jesus had, right? That, that's who was there to begin with, right? Nothing miraculous. In this story, and I don't think in anybody's story, nothing miraculous is going to happen in our lives or in the life of the church if it's not preceded by the church gathering to pray in a, in a united expectation of what is to come, right? what's based on God's promises. I mean, Jesus had promised already to 
extend his church to the gates of hell. When you, when you look at Matthew, was it 16? Um, when you look at that, you just go, man, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. That's the picture. He promised that. So prayer. Prayer is going to precede that. If you want to see miraculous things happen in your life, I don't know what you're up against this morning, but if you want to see miraculous things happen in your life, I'm not saying you have to be in a, in a prayer gathering, okay, at 9.30 on Sundays to, to prove that you're doing that. Sometimes I say things so forcefully that it probably comes across like, you're not a good Christian if you're not there at 9.30 and praying. Uh, I can get away with that like once every six sermons probably. And if that, does that make sense, you know? I, as a shepherd, I want to be, be sensitive to that. There's got to be a way. There's, there's, there's so many ways we could all be praying together, right? Like, I, I, there's four, five, six guys. Um, almost on a daily basis, we pray through a little app called Marco Polo. <laughs> this is the goofiest app where you send these little videos. And, it, like, it's easier than, like, taking the time to actually get together, but you can do it on that. Like, there's, there's different ways you can do it. You can make a phone call, do a 30-minute phone call with two friends or something. Like, there's lots of ways we could be about the business of obediently praying. Third thing I noticed in the text is Peter's transformation. I mentioned this earlier. I think this is pretty significant too. Again, you might remember Peter, right? Uh, Peter, I, Peter's, I love Peter. He's a fascinating character. Uh, sidebar, like if you read the Gospel of Mark, you read the Gospel of Mark, um, it's Mark writing it, the words, but it's actually Peter. Um, Mark is Peter's ghostwriter. So I've said oftentimes, try to use this illustration quite a bit, that when you get to the point in the Gospel of Mark where Peter is about to deny Jesus and then does deny Jesus, and Mark, you see, you see Mark is like hunched over the table and he's writing the whole story. Hey, Peter, is that right? Do I got that right? Do the details good? Okay, should I add anything? Like, we're going to try to keep this short. Mark's the shortest gospel, so Mark is good about keeping things short and fast and action-paced, you know? And I can just see Peter kind of over his shoulder, and he's like, yeah, 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 that's right. Oh, yeah, that happened. There was that night, and then Jesus said I was going to deny him, yada, yada, yada. I can just kind of envision. I just, this is my imagination, okay? There's no proof. It's imagination. Um, I just imagine Mark maybe being like, Peter, are you sure you want to put that in there? Make sure you want to talk about that time when you, you know, I mean, that was pretty bad. You denied Jesus three times. I don't want to give you too much crap about it, but you did it. You know? <laughs> I just see Peter being like, no, bro, put that in there. This is important. You know, Peter's kind of a go-hard leader, but I just I imagine those things in Peter's story, um, but it's part of his story, right? He would question Jesus' authority. You might remember the time when, when, uh, when Jesus is explaining, hey, I'm going to be, I'm going to be murdered. I'm going to be murdered, a criminal's murder. Like, they're going to put me in an electric chair. It's, it's a cross, actually, but they're going to put me on a, on, on a cross. That's what they're going to do. And, and Peter's like, excuse me? No. No, that's, that ain't happening. And Jesus looks at me and he's like, hey, get behind me, Satan. Now, I just said that in a really gentle voice. I, I don't think Jesus was super gentle in that moment. I don't think he was like, yo, get behind, I think it was, get behind me, Satan. Like, I can't even do it. But I, I think it was probably quite a bit more straightforward. Because Peter's arguing with him about what he's about to do. And this is, this is Jesus' main mission, right? And Peter's arguing with him. What a hard-headed nut. When I think about Peter, that's what I think about. He's hard-headed. This is Peter, though. Often tried to take matters into his own hands. 
operating in his own fleshly understanding, his own strength, goes off half-cocked. You might remember he went off half-cocked, right? He's the one that pulled out his uh, concealed sword. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when they tried to arrest Jesus, you know, it's the common argument for concealed carry. <laughs> we won't go there either, but <laughs> pulls out his concealed sword, hacks off the dude's ear, and Jesus is like, bro, <laughs> put your gack away. <laughs> Just now picks up his ear, heals the man. Like there's, there's something taking place there. So this is Peter, man. This is Peter. I'm really, I love Peter. It probably reminds me a lot of myself in many ways. Um, ultimately, though, denies Jesus three times. Like I said earlier, suffice it to say, Peter, Peter is, is a hard-headed dude. Got a thick skull. It probably takes about like a baseball bat to get the guy thinking right. That's what it feels like to me. When you look at verses 15 through 20, though, I've carried on long enough on this point. You look at verses 15 through 20, all that story behind, you meet a completely different Peter, okay? He's a completely different Peter now. He's totally, totally transformed. What does Peter do? Stands up among the growing band of disciples, right? And, and check this. They've been praying in the upper room. It appears the way the language is written that it has now grown from 11 people with some women and the brothers of Jesus now grown to 120, um, if you look at some of the original kind of Greek languages, it seems like what, what Luke is trying to do is trying to show us the growth of the church. How did they grow? It wasn't because of pamphlets and, and flyers and Facebook groups. It wasn't it. It was prayer. They'd been praying in the upper room, and God was adding to their midst already, and they were growing from 11 to 120. And I want you to check this, too, if you think about this. The timeline for that is this. At the time that Jesus ascends into heaven, it's been 40 days. From crucifixion, I should go this way for you guys because you read this way. Uh, from crucifixion to ascension, or well, let's say re yeah, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, about 40 days. Jesus ascends. Disciples now go back to the upper room and they're praying. From the time that Jesus ascends to the time that the Holy Spirit falls on them in Acts chapter 2 is 10 days. Catch that. 10 days. So if it's true that what Luke is doing is showing the growth in a span of less than 10 days, from 11 to 120, I mean, it's probably not hard to imagine that because people already knew Jesus was there. I mean, it, there are some back pieces of that. But here's what grew the church, prayer. And Peter, radically transformed, stands up among all of them. And he leads forward with what? Not really great talk. Not really great strategies. Just the Bible. So he stands up with the Bible. You think about this, Peter, his name is Cephas, means the rock. It's the foundation in some regard on which God was going to build the church. And Peter, in this moment, he's no longer a stubborn, hard-headed man. He's a man who's been humbled, I think, by his own sin in light of the love of Jesus. And he's now standing on the power of the rock. The power of the rock, which is Jesus, revealed in the scriptures. Okay, catch this. Jesus, Peter's not like grabbing his concealed sword and swinging that around anymore and trying to bully people into doing what he wants them to do. He's literally grabbing the Bible and just wielding the sword of the Spirit. That's what he's doing. And he leads from the book of Psalms. That's what it says. He reminds everybody of what Psalms said. And he's saying, hey, this, this, this moment in time that we're living in, this is a fulfillment of what was spoken beforehand in the Bible. 
I mean, we, you can call him a Bible thumper <laughs> in some regard, right? That's what he's doing, though. He's just leading from the only place of authority and the only place of power that he knows. He's a radically transformed man in his newly transformed frame of mind. What does Peter say? He basically, my summary of what he says here, is he basically reminds them, and he reminds us this, he reminds us that even, even when you experience the pain and the horror of having fake friends who maybe once walked with you, or in those painful moments, you, you and I, what we can remember is we can remember that God has a plan. I mean, this whole thing with Judas would have rocked their world. Judas walked with them everywhere. Close relationship. And then in an instant, becomes a traitor whose body hung in that tree until his guts spilled out. Nobody was going to go take him down because they're like, I ain't touching that. I, I can just feel the emotions in that, right? The betrayal, the rejection, all those things. The loneliness, the questions. Why did he betray us? It's not just that he betrayed Jesus, he betrayed everybody, right? Peter's reminding them, hey, th this is all according to God's plan. No one's re irreplaceable, right? That's an essence of what he says. Nobody's irreplaceable in that. I don't know about you, but you may have experienced some seasons of feeling alone um, because of abandonment, because of rejection, or the loss of a friendship. Um, maybe your marriage is on the rocks, whatever it may be. Um, I just want to say it's, when I read stuff like this, and I've walked through a lot of that too. I mean, all, most of y'all know my story, so I mean, definitely no perfection standing on the stage in front of you, that's for sure. Um, gives me some comfort. Yeah. Gives me some comfort that God's on the throne. Highly likely that even as you maybe wrestle with, if, you, if you're wrestling with some of those emotions or some of that pain, highly likely to know that God has already raised up someone new to walk with you. It's most likely true. Someone new to walk with you as you witness the power of the Holy Spirit at work uh, wherever you go. Uh, whatever your situation is, wrap this, this piece up. Whatever your situation is, like, here's, here's what I want you to remember. Uh, real transformation. Right? If you're looking at your life and you're, you're hoping to see some change, whatever kind of change that may be that you're looking for, right? If you're wanting to see some kind of change and transformation, um, that process of change, that process of going from the old you to the new you, that process of transformation and change, it's always going to include a new love and, and, and a renewed devotion to God's Word. It's based on God's Word. There's, there's nothing else that's going to get you there. All the self-help books, all the counseling, all the psychology, all the checking out behind the TV, no matter what it is that you try to do to cope until things get better, the only thing that's going to radically transform what's going on inside of you or in your relationships or whatever it is you're, you're at in your life is going to be a love and, 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 and a devotion to God's Word. And I ain't going to try to tell you it's easy, okay? Like, you want to go, like, lose some weight and bulk up a little bit. There's nothing easy about that. It takes devotion, takes commitment. And there are going to be some low valleys, 
when your legs start hurting because you did leg day. Okay. Same way with reading God's word. You have days where it's like, I got absolutely nothing out of that, Lord. Thanks for what feels like a waste of time. And trust me, the Lord's shoulders are really big. Like He can handle a relationship like that between you and him, okay? Devotion and commitment and a renewed passion for it. And one last thing on this point. If you're sensing, hey, that's me, I need to, I need to, need to get there. I need, yeah, I need to have a renewed sense of devotion and commitment to God's word. You might start out before opening the Bible and praying just by simply saying, God, I don't have what it takes to read your word today. I don't have, a ta- have what it takes to interpret your word or understand your word. And it sometimes feels boring and mundane to me, but God, I need your spirit. Start where they're at. Pray for the spirit to ask you and to help you ask him to help you understand it and get something from it i'm pretty sure i was watching another preacher this week pretty sure that's a that's a prayer god loves to answer i don't think he's going to leave you hanging on that he's going to give you something whether it's a word or a phrase or a sentence or a paragraph or an entire book he's going to give you something just stop and ask him okay fourth thing i noticed in the text this is the last part right a new leader is chosen as I said earlier, I think that part of the text probably doesn't seem very exciting, doesn't seem very spiritual. I would argue, though, that it's probably one of the most exciting and spiritual things that the Holy Spirit does do in a church family outside of bringing people to salvation in Christ. So really, at the end of the day, it should be no surprise to any of us that, that God actually does value leadership. Um, I, I could probably stand here and talk about leadership for the next five hours in terms of failures in leadership and things we've learned in leadership and so on and so forth. But just to be brief on what's being dealt with here in the text, God does value leadership. Now, it does drive me nuts because we're all broken people, so there ain't nobody who's going to lead perfectly ever. There was only Jesus, right? That's a quick summary of that. Um, What God does do does value leadership and he does set some very high standards for selecting and he does set some high standards for the qualifications uh, for leadership uh, one of the things i've always told my girls especially and my son too um, growing up is i would say to them it's not like they listen to me <laughs> all the time um, but i would always tell them hey you know it'd be really good if you set some qualifications for the man you want to marry let's list that out let me list it out with you and I sometimes use myself as an example and be like, what are some good things you see in me that you'd like to see in your husband? What are some bad things you see in me that you don't want to see in your husband, right? Like, we can be honest about that. And again, not like they always listened, <laughs> but um, qualifications are very important. And, and if we would set those qualifications high for our significant other, or even in friendships, uh, we ought to set them pretty high for leaders in the church. Um, need to be qualified. In, in these final verses, 21 through 26, what you see here is you see a process take place. It's kind of one of the first processes we see take place for the early church, so to speak. But they're selecting somebody who is biblically qualified to replace Judas. Why? So that the core leadership of the church can be restored to 12 apostles. Now, that may not seem very significant to you, but I do think that 12 apostles um, was a direct reflection of the 12 tribes of Israel. Lots of theology behind that that we could spend a lot of time on. Probably not going to be super significant for us to do other than I just kind of geek out over it, okay? Um, There are probably some learning points, but it would take a long time to get there. At the end of the day, though, they want to restore from 11 to 12. And in this case, what the disciples do is that they choose two men, right? 
And there's qualifications for these two men. They have to meet a certain level to even be thought about, to even be voted on. And, and basically you could sum up the qualifications at this point is that they had to be men who had witnessed everything from the time of Jesus' baptism to his ascension. And then what they did, and the next part of the process after identifying the, the, uh, the qualifications, was they spent some time in prayer. Now that's fascinating. They prayed about who should be the next leader here. Um, and then they cast lots. And, and, and that probably doesn't seem very spiritual, right? It seems kind of a little business-like. Really what they're doing is it's kind of a voting process, so to speak. What they're doing is they're basically rolling some dice. Okay? They're basically going to take a stick or a stone. Hey, thanks for dropping your phone. They're probably going to take a stick or a stone. They're going to write somebody's name on it. Um, and they're going to write those two dudes' names on it. And they're basically going to cast those dice, as it were, into the lap of the person. And they're going to see whose name shows up. That's kind of the process. So they're basically rolling dice. Um, and they're trusting that God is so sovereign that he can control even the roll of a dice. So actually, a very spiritual thing that's taking place in the way that they're doing it. At the end of the story, a man named Matthias gets chosen. The number of the apostles is restored to 12 again, again, mirroring those 12 tribes of Israel. At the end of the day, whom God chose, I think is probably relatively unimportant to us. Here, you know, Matthias doesn't ever come back up again in the text. But I think how he was chosen, how he was identified, that's important. That's a matter of great importance for us as a church, too. Leaders should never be chosen because of popularity. They should never be chosen because of business skills. They should never be chosen because of resources that they give to the church. Leaders get chosen in the church based upon spiritual qualifications that then include things like um, character. Is character solid? Right? Um, competence. Are you able to do the job we've asked you to do? Uh, chemistry. Do you fit? Or are we just going to always be arguing about what, where we're headed, right? So chemistry is important. And calling. Are you called to that kind of leadership? And, and that kind of uh, assessment and evaluation process goes all the way from, hey, do you want to mow the yard or do you want to be an elder? Like, all the way through there, you use those same four C's. I think it's very biblical. It's an easy way to remember it. And we try to use those. Where's your character at? Are you able to do the job? Do you fit well on the team? And do you feel called to doing this? And on top of that, this should be bathed in prayer, right? You see prayer all over this text. Everything they did was bathed in prayer. So, in conclusion, the, these are some of the first things the Holy Spirit does, right? As he, as he builds his church within the gates of hell. First things he reveals about his work in the early church. Um, again, probably appeared to be a little bit mundane at first, but... You know, the title of the sermon, I think, is something like, there's nothing mundane about this. I think that's, that's a weird title, but nothing mundane about this. Even the things that seem mundane really aren't mundane. Because here's what the Holy Spirit loves to do. He loves to work through what appears to be very mundane, and it's actually very extraordinary. He does very extraordinary things. Um, when it comes to obedience, I want to kind of reiterate these things as we wrap it up. Obedience to God is always preceded by believing in his promises. Remember that? Prayer, nothing miraculous is going to happen if it's not preceded by the church gathering to pray in a unified expectation of what's to come, based on God's promises once again. Um, transformation, 
I don't know what your situation is, but real transformation is going to include always a new love and a new devotion for God's word. And then when it comes to choosing leaders, once again, you choose leaders based on character, competence, chemistry, calling, and bathe all of this in prayer. Uh, Prayer is really a, a big central aspect of what we just studied. It's all over it. Could have done a three-point sermon on the importance of prayer. Uh, Many commentators do. Many preachers do. Um, Prayer is definitely saturated the story we just read. I don't know where God's uh, uh, like getting after you at in the midst of this, uh, just briefly. I don't know. I don't know where he's getting after you as you listen to this sermon, as you studied the text with me. Um, I I do know this. Um, Jesus promised us to, to give us his very own spirit. And God's spirit, he's promised to lead us into all the truth, right? Promised to give us comfort in times of difficulty. uh, Promised to give us supernatural power in those times when when we need it. And especially to give witness to others. Um, So I don't know where where you're at in your life, in your walk, um, in regards to the things we've looked at this morning. But I'm just going to trust the Holy Spirit as we close. um, That he'll identify those things. And he'll come and reveal to you what the next steps are in continuing to move forward. Nothing mundane about this life. Um, Even those small baby steps of growth are actually super extraordinary as God works in and through you. You might look back a few years from now and go, man, I can't believe God did that in me. When at the time it just seemed like nothing was happening. Amen? Would you stand with me? (coughs) Father, thank you for your word. Pray, God, as we close that you come, speak to us, continue to work in our hearts. Trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.